Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of, <coughs> and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I have away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even if, as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good afternoon. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic Church. We want to welcome you here today to our Sunday service. For those joining us for the first time, two weeks ago we launched a church-wide campaign called Go, and it was the effective launching and sending of our people to three different categories of people, which corresponded to three different places, the least in the church, the last in society, and the lost in the world. And today we wrap up with the last of the least in the church sermon series. And as we defined early on, the, the least, as the Bible defines it, are those members of the church who may be at some disadvantaged or insecure standing. And it dawned on me this past week that in some category or capacity, at some point or another, we all fit the description of being the least. Whether you're an eager, but let's face it, a timid and unaware freshman at the university, or a single among mostly dating friends, or a new member um, at our church in a sea of veteran members, or someone who just always feels like the odd man out. All of us at some point will experience being the least of them in the church. So what does it mean to love the least of them? Well, I think it simply means to love all of our members the best we can with particular consideration for those who might be in a disadvantaged or insecure standing at that time. Now, I could not think of a better passage to teach on um, about love than our passage today. Dubbed as the love chapter, this is the most famous chapter in all of the Bible uh, that speaks directly about love. And that's saying a lot since all the Bible is essentially about love. It's 1 Corinthians 13. The love is patient, love is kind passage. 
and so popular for wedding sermons, this passage, that many think that this passage is primarily about a love between a man and a wife. Uh, Ladan Lashkari, in his article, what, Lo- what Does Love Mean?, asked a group of f- professionals to pose the question, what does love mean to a group of four, four to eight-year-old children? And these are some of their responses. You'll find it in the booklet. Rebecca, age eight, said this about what love is. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis. That's love. Or take Danny, age seven. Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. How thoughtful. Uh, Emily, age eight. Love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy, my mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. Uh, some cultural authorities for you um, that say that when, when, when culture initially thinks about love, it thinks about the love between a man and a wife, and rightly so, and, and while this passage is certainly applicable to marriage, uh, Paul is primarily writing to address the topic of living in Christian community in a way that glorifies God, and that is by treating all of its members of Christ's body the way God treated us, with agape love, that self-sacrificing, other-oriented love. And if we, exilic, got this right, our church could be known for a place uh, uh, for our love for one another, the church where people go to to belong. And this could be the greatest witness to the gospel we could have to the church and to society and the world. Uh, But it's got to start with us. Otherwise, it would be a hypocritical love and a hypocritical witness to the world. Because how could our witness to love be honest and full of integrity if we didn't love those within our ranks first, if we didn't take care of each other first? And we would be staying true then to what Jesus told us in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so Paul in this passage will talk about love and perhaps these three things about love. He'll talk about the primacy of love. He'll talk about the personality of love. And then finally, he'll talk about the permanence of love, the primacy, the personality, and the permanence of love. Let's start first with the primacy of love. There's no greater thing for the church to know and to live out than love. Love is what's primary and Paul addresses this with the Corinthians, uh, the Corinthian church, because they were so enamored with spiritual gifts to the point of causing serious division among themselves rather than loving one another. And so Paul is going to give in this beginning section three hypothetical examples, each making the same central point that no matter what great spiritual gift they possessed, without love, it's all for nothing. The first example that Paul gives is verse 1, and he writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here, Paul is addressing a truly spectacular 
and otherworldly gifts the Corinthians had and practiced, and it was the gift of tongue. Now, whatever your view of the gift of tongue is and its practice today, the bottom line for Paul is abundantly clear. Without love to go with it, you're but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now imagine if I just right now in the middle of service just got into the middle of the floor and just played the cymbal, only the cymbal, for 30 minutes straight. Kind of like how Will Ferrell plays the cowbell. Um, But he had a band, right? But I I wouldn't be playing with a band. Uh, I'd be playing with no other music, no other instruments, just the cymbal. Uh, It wouldn't be music, and it wouldn't be edifying. There wouldn't be any beauty or benefit. It would be senseless, and it would be a serious disturbance to the worship of God and the love for the saints. And that's not unlike what speaking in tongues without love was like in the Corinthian church. Now, the particular problem in the Corinthian church was not that they were practicing this very spectacular gift, but they were using it to recognize and confirm a higher spiritual status to the ones who had it. Um, And this caused all sorts of spiritual and social rifts and cliques. And in particular, a dangerous division started to take shape between the spiritual haves and the spiritual have-nots. Now, I'm afraid that there is a reproduction of this going on in some contemporary churches today. For instance, there are churches today that would overemphasize the supernatural or the revelatory gifts, the supposed gifts of heavenly languages and new insights about God from God. And when a newcomer with a different Christian background comes into the church, they feel burdened or uncomfortable and insecure that they don't worship with such spiritual fervor and expertise. Or there are other contemporary churches that would go as far as to say that speaking in tongue is one necessary evidence of your true baptism. It's what makes you a genuine Christian if you have these gifts. And this kind of atmosphere cannot, cannot foster a sense of love for one another. Only division and, as Paul would argue, noise. The practice of tongues and men of angels, then, without love, is just noisy and unedifying. The second hypothetical example Paul gives is, and if I had prophetic powers, Paul says, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Paul says that if the church had the prophetic gift to be able to speak and teach God's word and to even predict the future, which is what, um, which is what the, the gift of prophecy entailed back in the time of the apostles. And if the church had all understanding of divine hidden truths and had all knowledge and even faith, faith, I mean, the, the, the requisite for salvation, if you had that even, so as to remove mountains, if you have all this but love, I am nothing, Paul says. You know, today's equivalent might be a church that has a ultra-high culture of biblicism, intellectualism, well-read, smart, and talented people who are able to know the will of God as articulated in the scriptures and to then articulate it back uh, well, uh, the gospel and biblical truths. But Paul would say that you can have the best teachers and utmost regard for the word of God and a faith to match it, but without love you'd still be nothing. Without love, then, 
it renders even your faith and love for God and his word as void. And finally, in Paul's third example, he says, and if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. You see, a church can be known for its generosity and charity, its concern for social justice and public good works. But without love, Paul continues to say, I gain nothing. But what's interesting is the description of someone who gives away all they have, even delivers their own body up to be burned, sounds actually like the poster version of what a Christian's supposed to be. After all, doesn't this describe Jesus himself? But sacrifice without love, Paul says, even if for another, is selfish. Seems counter counterintuitive, but generosity can be selfish. Think charitable giving because you know there are certain tax benefits. Or offering to pay for someone else uh, after a meal together because perhaps you just don't want to be in her debt and you don't want to owe her one later. Selfish. Uh, Jeremy Sherman, a professor at the University of San Francisco and writer for Psychology Today, said this about generosity and selfishness. If you'll look with me in the bulletin, it's there for you. Paradoxically, the more you praise generosity, the more selfish you can become. Give and take requires balanced counter-pressure. Uh, we should be as generous and selfish as we need to be to maintain give and take. Give as good as you get and expect to get as good as you get or give. What Sherman gets at is that even our charity and our generosity, a thing that was supposed to be this free giving of yourself and your resources, has all of a sudden become a big old math problem, an accounting ledger requiring a balancing of the T-chart. You need more computation than actual love to be able to give. And so in sum, Paul is saying again that a church could be the most spectacular, could be the most knowledgeable, could be the most faithful and generous and even sacrificial, but without love will be nothing, will have nothing, and will gain nothing. And so what is the more excellent way? Well, it's love. Now, to live love, we need to know love and its personality. And in this next section, Paul, in 15 statements, no less, described the personality of love. As the prominent theologian at the turn of the 20th century, Charles Hodge, once said, this is not a methodical dissertation on Christian love, but an exhibition of love, meaning that it's a showcase or a, a display taken together. Um, it gives us a mosaic, a personality of the kind of love we are to embody as a community. Now, we won't be covering all 15 statements, and nor would you want me to, maybe in this setting. It would just take too long. Uh, but we'll do a selective drive-by uh, drive to highlight some things that might be helpful for us as we think um, specifically about how to love the least among us in the church. Uh, verse 4, Paul starts off by saying, love is patient and love is kind. And if you think about these two things, one is just the passive form of the other. If patience is taking or putting up with anything from 
others. Kindness is giving anything to others. And if we were to focus in on kindness for a second, kindness, that word means serviceable or useful. It means providing people with what they need. And so, for example, if there was a new member at our church, and we have 50 of them from the last class of membership, uh, it might make it easier for them if you, someone who had been at the church since the beginning or for a while, uh, would approach them to say hi first and even invite them to lunch after service. And a lot of us do, I know that. This might ease their transition and make their life not only easier but more encouraged. This kind of love would be kind. Next, Paul says that love does not envy and love doesn't boast. And these two things are inversely related, so they often work in tandem. But both are a type of selfishness, envy and boast. If envy is a selfishness that happens when you perceive something to be lacking in your life, boasting is a selfishness that happens when you perceive something to be lacking in someone else's life, and you stand over them in a seat of superiority. And so when we have, we boast in selfishness, and when we lack, we envy uh, in selfishness. Now consider the contrast of envy and boast in these two scenarios. Imagine in the first scenario, uh, they got engaged, but you're still waiting for him to pop the darn question. But in the second scenario, when you got engaged, you showed off your ring in front of everyone to see, and the person from that first scenario was there. Now, in both these cases, there's a lack of love, as Paul would describe it. Because love would dictate that in the first scenario, you celebrate your friend's engagement with sincere gladness. And that in the second, you don't flaunt the rock on your finger, but under, uh, you understate its extravagance. And relatedly, Paul continues and says that love is not rude. If arrogance is an inflation of yourself, rudeness is an imposing of yourself. It's acting unbecomingly, caring not for feelings or sensitivities. Poor manners are rude. But you know what's tricky? Even amongst Christians and even within the same body of Christ, uh, there can be different definitions of what poor manners are. Every culture has a different threshold. For example, for what is considered rude in terms of showing up on time for appointments. Here in our culture... Five to ten minutes is generally considered socially acceptable. But if you're pushing 15 and 20 minutes, especially without notice, you'd be considered rude. But in Burma, it's socially acceptable to be 60 minutes, up to an hour late for an appointment. Now, imagine in a cross-cultural short-term mission situation where you have American Christians and Burmese Christians trying to get together for a prayer meeting. What would love dictate then if the American Christians arrive five minutes before the appointed time, but the Burmese Christians arrive 30 to 40 minutes after the appointed time? You see, what's considered rude is different across cultures and even among us Christians. So how do we get this right? Well, the love that Paul talks about isn't rude. And so it would be considerate and sensitive to other people's definition of manners and what's rude and not only your own. 
You see, love calls for a graciousness, a love that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Love believes all things. And so when love covers a wrong, let's say, let's say you've been wronged, love believes all things. And it also believes in the best outcome for the one who has done the wrong, that the wrong will be confessed and forgiven and the loved one restored to righteousness. But love also hopes all things, even after love has done the work of bearing all things and believing all things, but that person in the wrong is still unappreciative and unrepentant. What do you do then? Well, the love that Paul calls for is a love uh, that still hopes, meaning when love runs out of faith, love holds on to hope. You see, love dictates and provides a deep and residing confidence that as long as God is sovereign and gracious, human failure is never final. A love that hopes knows that sin, death, sadness, and justice will never have the final day. But that love will. That terrorism and human trafficking will never have the final day. That gossip and division in the church, even in the church, will never have the final day. The rope of love's hope has no end. Now this is the personality of love. It's self-sacrificial and other-oriented. But if you're anything like me, after getting through all this, maybe you're motivated but a little bit disheartened because you're asking the question, how could we measure up to all of this? It seems like a tall order indeed, and almost too tall. For me, this sermon, preparing it this past week, may have been one of the challenging sermons to prepare because not only do I, as a preacher and a pastor of this church, have the responsibility of technically fashioning the sermon, uh, but also submitting to the word myself. And at the advice of a good brother, I tried something this past week. I replaced the word love for my name, Brian just to see how it would sound. And so I read it again. Brian is patient and kind. Brian does not envy or boast. Brian is not arrogant or rude. Brian bears all things, believes all things. Brian hopes all things, and Brian endures all things. Well, I got to say, it didn't sound very good. Uh, love seemed deeply amiss in my own heart. And if you're honest with yourself and you did the same exercise, you'd find the same to be true. You know, everywhere we look, there is a fall, falling short of this personality of love. And even and especially in the church for some of us, some of us have been really burnt by the church. Some of us have been scorned and ostracized by our family. Some of us have been gossiped by and betrayed by our friends, those dearest to us. So how can we love if there's no evidence or good example of love anywhere? Well, Kevin DeYoung helps us out a little bit when he writes this, and you'll find it in your bulletin. Love is the most excellent way, but it's also an impossible way. None of us loves, at least not fully and constantly, only one has ever lived in this more excellent way. Only one man has ever loved like this. Only one person will love you 
like this. The point here is to know that the personality of love can be found in the person of love. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know how we saw it? We saw it when Jesus was patient. We saw it when Jesus was kind. We saw it when Jesus did not boast or envy and Jesus wasn't arrogant or rude. Jesus bore all things. Jesus believed all things. Jesus hoped all things and endured all things. And he did all this on a Roman crucifix, brutalized, crushed, and hanged on that rugged cross so that we would know what love is in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we can live love in our community because 1 John 4, 10 and 19 says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent us his son. We love because he first loved us. We can love because we were shown love. We were loved, shown an example of love in our Savior, Jesus Christ, the person of love. So I want to close by talking about the permanence of love and the practical application of it. We love because of Jesus, but we also love because it's the way of eternity. Paul writes, starting from verse 8 to the end, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. Meaning that every other thing, including the greatest spiritual gifts, are temporary. They're only available for a limited time only. Verse 9, Paul continues and says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Every other thing, including the greatest spiritual gifts, are not only temporary, but they're partial, meaning that those who exercise the gifts are still limited in their perfect knowledge of God. Verse 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In this way, uh, every other thing, including the greatest spiritual gifts, are temporary, partial, but also elementary in the sense that Christians are children, children compared to what they will be when they are perfected in heaven. And Paul will conclude this chapter by saying this. So now faith and hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And I thought about this a lot. Now why would Paul say that the greatest of these three um, is love? It seems like faith is a pretty monumental, monumentally important thing. Uh, because faith is the thing that saves you, we're told in the scriptures. And hope is the thing that sustains you and the thing that, that, that gets you going even on your longest and hardest days. But why is love the greatest thing? Well, it's the same reason why diamonds are the most important thing. Because diamonds are forever. Uh, the value of something, in other words is determined by its ability or uh, quality of lasting. So imagine if I give you two different movie ticket vouchers, and the first voucher expires tomorrow, and you could only redeem it at select theaters in the city. But the second ticket that I gave you um, has no expiration date, and it could be redeemable at any theater in the world. 
Now, which of the movie tickets is greater in value? Well, I suppose the one with no expiration date, because why? It lasts longer. And so of the three, faith, hope, and love, if I had to choose what was the greatest, it'd have to be love, because it'll last the longest. It is, it'll last into eternity. See, there will come a day when faith and hope will no longer be needed. You won't need faith when the perfect comes, according to Paul, because you won't have to walk by faith because you'll be walking by sight. And you won't need hope anymore because all of what history has been waiting for will have arrived. And so love is what was and is and will be. It's eternal because God is eternal and God is love. And so exilic, continue on in the way of love, which is of greatest value. That means this month, perhaps, take a stranger into your apartment for a meal or bear with the marginalized and maybe somewhat awkward or the brother or sister in the wrongdoing. Make someone's day here in the exilic community a little bit easier and bearable and kind. Encourage the exhausted and the tired and the burnt out members of our members of our church with an invitation, let's say, to Grace Street after service. Now, personally, um, I started serving at the church this past April. And since coming, uh, you've welcomed your homes to me and my family. And I'm so thankful. Uh, people calling us and telling us they want to drop by with food and gifts and souvenirs from their travels from this past summer. People volunteering to watch our daughter for us. And I may need to cash in that check pretty soon because mommy and daddy need a date night. Uh, people taking us out for dinner. Uh, never so quickly for us. And I, I mean this. Never so quickly did strangers become friends. And friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. So I wanted to say thanks for your love for us. Live love. Why? Because the person of love, because the lover of our souls once said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the person of love we see love shown for us. And so as we've received in you Help us to give to each other in the love that you taught us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.